Hey friends, last week we kicked off a series here at Encounter called Rooted, as we just heard. Remember, we put a picture on the screen behind me of one of those towering redwood trees in Redwood National Forest in California. And we said, how do we get a faith that looks like that? And the answer, as you recall, is that first we need to work on, on the most important part of that structure. It's nothing that you see. In fact, the most impressive part of that structure isn't anything above ground. It's what's happening uh, underground, underneath your feet as you walk through the park. We said, remember, that those trees have a root system wider than those redwoods are tall. It's incredible. However, to develop a root system like that takes an incredible amount of time. Remember, we looked at the life of David. We saw last week as he was anointed as the next great king over Israel, and then like 20 years goes by where they're just waiting for, for him to actually become king over Israel. And, and we said, among other things, remember that line that said, God is more interested in developing you. God is more interested in, in discipling you than he is in developing your dream, your vision, your plans, your ideas for the future. He wants to grow that root system inside of you. And that takes, as we said, a credible amount of time. Uh, we said, remember, that, that waiting time isn't wasted time if you use it wisely. The question is, I, I'm sorry, how do I use it wisely? I'm so glad you asked. Welcome to this week's installment. How do we use the time wisely to grow that root system? We're going to go back to the life of David, and we're going we're gonna to go to a place in the Bible where we see one of the most I'm going to say overused cliche stories of probably any story in the Bible. Chances are, if like this is your first time ever being in church before, you probably have heard the story of David and Goliath, especially during football season, when, when it seems like sports commentators and analysis, they cannot help but, but like draw these comparisons of the David and Goliath stories. This morning, we're going to see just how bad of an analogy that is. And not only because it's overused and it's cliche and it probably makes God's heart sad, okay, that I'm not, this is not too extreme, that we've taken a good story full of depth, full of meaning, and it was just like beat it to death. Uh, not just because it's overused, we're going to see, it, it's just, it's a bad example of the story. Some of you have heard of it before. Uh, some of you heard, remember there's uh, Philistines over here, they're kind of like the bad guys. Israelites over here, they're of course the good guys. They're kind of on these like mountain crests, and then there's a valley in the middle. And it's, a, it's kind of a, like each party chooses their champion, and it's a winner-take-all kind of fight to the death uh, down in the valley. Now, uh, most of the time when we hear that, you know, David, Goliath comes down, he's the giant, right? And he's like taunting Israel a couple times, 40 days, 40 nights, two times a day, morning and evening, in fact, he comes down and, and taunts him. And of course, David goes by, he gets his sling, you know, and with a quick prayer and a quick flick of the wrist on his uh, wrist rocket, he drops the, the giant and like story over. Go in peace. Have a good week. No, I'm <laughs> just, just kidding. Um, we're going to see this morning... That's a bad uh, shortening of the story because I, I want us to see David did not believe, beat Goliath in the valley. Your giant is not defeated in the valley. We have to get that under control. We have to, we have to see that as true because, because you're fighting a giant. And you assume that, that because David beat his giant in the valley, you're going to beat your giant in the valley as well. 
What I want us to see and why I want to say that's so incredibly important is because when you go to work tomorrow, you might face a giant of a, of a boss who is just taking a lifetime of disappointment out on the people closest to him. And you're included in that select group of people. And you're wondering, like, how, do I, how do I deal with that? You're dealing with a, with a giant that maybe, maybe it's because of a spouse who, who just has this honest but difficult conversation of wondering, I, I'm not even sure I, I'm a Christian and I don't know if I believe in God anymore. And there's this worry, this anxiety that comes along with that. Listen, you're dealing with a giant, call it anxiety or depression or, a, or, or addiction. You're dealing with a giant that could be called change, that could be called loss. You're dealing with a giant that could be called regrets over a lifetime or you're dealing with a giant that could be called a missed opportunity. And because of the giants that you're facing either today or if you're looking around going, listen, I don't have any giants. You're in a season of preparation. I hope you spend it well. The giant is coming. And when he comes and when it it rears its ugly head, I want you to remember that the giant is not defeated in the valley. Your giant is not defeated in the valley. Let me explain what I mean. We're going to go to the story. It's 1 Samuel. There's a Bible in the chairs in front of you. If you like ours better, or if you don't have one at home, just go ahead and take it. We give them away every week, and we love that. Last week, we looked at 1 Samuel 16, and David is just a kid. Uh, One chapter later, 1 Samuel 17, we don't know how much time has elapsed, maybe months, maybe years. Uh, Probably not like that much, though. So you still think he's a kid. He's a a young teenager, probably. Pick it up in verse 20, where it says, Early in the morning, David left the flock in the care of a shepherd. So he's out in the field. He found a sub for the day. So he loads up and he sets out as Jesse had directed his dad. He reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle positions. He's not there to fight. He's there to deliver like uh, bread and, and cheese. As, as, he, uh, as the army is going out to his battle positions, he, they're shouting the war cry. They are heard before they are seen. Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines uh, facing each other. Remember, Philistines over on one side, Israelites over on the other side. There was kind of this valley in between. Brought a map with us this morning so we could check this out a little bit better. Uh, this is ripped right from Google Maps. So try to ignore if you can see it, the five-lane divided highway. That came later. Uh, <laughs> Over here on the left, kind of close to the Mediterranean Sea, you can see an orange dot show up over the modern-day city of Tel Aviv. This is where the Philistines are camped out. Uh, Philistines are seafaring people that came over from uh, Crete, the island nation, and they kind of settle here, and they're like expanding territory. Borders are somewhat of a loose concept in this time. It's sort of like town to town and village to village, but this is generally where they are. Um, Over on the other side, we see a red circle where Jerusalem uh, is today and actually was back then as well. You can just kind of see, as you know, this is a hot, dry, mountainous, arid kind of climate. You get that picture. That's why I want to, even today, you can just see that, that life and these conditions are exceptionally difficult, except in one area. You can kind of see in between those cities, there's like a green patch where that diamond is right there. The Philistine army calls out and they start to attack. They're getting ready to attack Jerusalem. King Saul in Jerusalem gets wind that these enemies are coming. They're like marching toward. Maybe some scouts tipped him off. Saul quick hustles up an army together and goes out and they meet them in this green lush patch called the, the Shephala where they can camp out. It's important to know that it's green and it's lush because you can camp out for days. And in fact, as the Philistines are sending their champion down into the valley, it's been 40 days. 
And they've got no intention of going home anytime soon. Sometimes we think, or, or sometimes maybe you've heard that the, that the reason why those two nations like called out champions uh, down to fight each other is because battles, which is true, battles weren't so much uh, an, uh, an example of whose army is stronger than one another's, but battles were fought to judge whose God, whose deity is stronger than one another. And not everybody has to die in order for us to see that. So they said, Listen, let's just put your best against our best and, and duke it out. There's another reason, a very, very practical reason why they did this. They're both camped up on the tops of the ridges. Neither group wants to be the first one to run down into the valley and fight like this uphill battle. And there's like this stalemate that goes on that says, listen, we cannot win this if this is like an uphill, if they have that advantage. So they're just like blocking the road, waiting, waiting each other out. And this, this could be a while. Goliath comes down into the valley and he starts shouting. You know the story. Goliath is you know, nine feet tall, massive dude. His biceps are as big as my waist. Not mine, maybe Zach's waist. You know, it's big, right? <laughs> He's got the barbed wire tats around his arm. I'm making all of this up to paint a picture. You get it. Goliath. He's huge, and he's taunting Israel's army. He's taunting Israel's king. He's taunting Israel's God every day for 40 days. What I want us to see in this is like as we write ourselves into the story as somebody like standing on the top of that crest, watching down and listening to the giant taunt us, that this is a, this is a giant that occupies our thoughts day and night. This is the first thing that they hear in the morning and the last fear they go to bed to. That just like so many illnesses, like anxiety, depression, just like crippling giants in our life, having to go, to go to work tomorrow, whatever it is, just like the giants in our life, it just has a way of robbing us of joy. It's, it's kind of like, like playing a piano. And you can play the most perfect melody in the world, except for if the piano is badly out of tune, every time you hit a key, it doesn't bring joy. It brings pain. This is what life faced with a giant feels like. But for a lot of you, I don't need to tell you that. You already know. And what makes things even worse is we can see on the map, this, uh, this orangey circle over here is in the exact like, middle north and south area of, of Canaan. Some of you remember Canaan if you grew up in Sunday school stories or maybe your kids have been around here long enough and now they're teaching you. Canaan is the place that in the book of Joshua, aptly named Joshua, didn't clear the area like he was supposed to of the Canaanites. Joshua was supposed to go in and just wipe out all of those cities, but he decides, he decides that he's done enough. And so he leaves three cities, Gaza, Ashdod, and Gath. And Gath is known for breeding giants, which seems to be like relevant information now that there's a giant in the valley mocking your king, your army, and your god. And everybody up on the ridge is there staring down and going, 300 years, 300 years we've been at war. 300 years, years we, have sh we should have won this battle 300 years ago. I'm fighting him. My dad fought his dad. My granddad fought his granddad. 
We have been like locked in combat for generations. Some of you need to hear this, and it's tough, because some of you are caught up into something, right, that has implications to go on for generations. Some of you are like inheriting this struggle and saying, I know that I'm a workaholic because my dad was a workaholic because his dad was a workaholic. I know my struggle because it's been a family struggle. I know why my family, I just look at this, this family tree and, it, and it's like this, this disease has just like wilted the entire thing. I get why my struggles are what they are. And some of you need to hear that because it's going to continue. It's going to continue. And if you don't face it, if you don't address that, if you don't nip that in the bud now, your kids are going to deal with it. Your grandkids are going to deal with it if you can think that far down. Meanwhile, the giant is calling out day and night for 40 days, and they can't think of anything else to do. And then David shows up. Verse 32. So David said to Saul, Hey, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. <laughs> that's cute, buddy. Yeah, that's, that's a good one. Saul is more serious, though. Verse 33, he says, um, You are not able to go out and fight. You'll go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a young man, probably a mid to late teenager, and he has been a warrior from his youth. This word warrior is somewhat of a technical word. It just doesn't mean like, oh, yeah, man, he's been fighting since like he could walk, and maybe a little bit before then, seen him as a baby. But no, um, this is a kind of a technical term because what he's referring to is that these uh, ancient military strategies typically had these three parts to them. The one part was like cavalry. This is people on horseback. This is people on chariots. This is like the ancient equivalent of tanks. Other people are the artillery. They're the, you know, the archers of the day, the slingers of the day that we'll see. And maybe they're the snipers of the day today. Um, this last group this last group is the infantryman. This is the warrior that he's referring to. A uh, warrior is somebody who's just like locked in day after day. Uh, there's mortal combat, hand to hand, the swords and the shields, the helmets, eye to eye kind of fighting. An infantryman. These are the Marines of the day. And Goliath was an infant. Goliath was like the prototypical infantryman. He was the warrior. So David makes this comment, hey, like, I'll go out there with my slingshot, and uh, yeah, I'm good. And everybody starts laughing, and they keep on laughing. Listen to what happens next. He goes this, verse 34, David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from his flock, I went after it. I struck it and rescued the sheep from its mouth. And when it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Sorry, whatever picture of David you had in your mind up until this point, he's young, I'll grant you that. And everybody starts laughing, and they're probably laughing even as David starts to make his, his explanation as to why he wants to fight the giant. And they all start laughing, but then he gets to the part about dropping bears. Yeah, and it's like, oh, oh, serious. and maybe his brothers show up alongside, and they're like, yeah, we've got a lion's head over the fireplace. I don't, David brought it home one time. I thought he found it. Like, that's incredible. Uh, David has something. 
Like, like this, is the, this is the first, I think, kind of hint in the story that like God is telling this narrative. And he's just kind of like, like just dropping this hint to say, you know what? I don't think Goliath was defeated in the valley. And I don't think your giant is going to be defeated in the valley either. I think that something else is at work here. Verse 36 says, your servant, this is David's continuing to speak, your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. Uh, this, this uncircumcised Philistine, which seems gratuitous, I'll give you that, but it's in the Bible, um, will be like one of them. Will be like one of them because he defied the armies of the living God. Now listen, the Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. <laughs> Godspeed, you've got a lot of work ahead of you. If we could go, um, Tony, if we could pull up the armies slide again, because this is the, this is the next clue that's just kind of bizarre. And it also kind of blew my mind as I like, learned this throughout the week. So long in the story that we've been talking about, there's been the Israelite army and the Philistine army. And uh, David comes out, the narrator tells us, and he comes and he, visits, and he visits the Israelite army, singular, one army the entire time. But for some reason, when David gets like all worked up and he's trying to explain to Saul, like, no, 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 I got this. Give me a shot. Put me in, coach. Like when, when, he's, when he's making his case, he says, oh, no, no, no. this Philistine defiled, defied the armies of God. He switches it to plural. And I don't think that's a typo. I think he did something on purpose. See, this is the, the last clue. When, when David is like putting this like into his mind together and he's figuring out what he's going to do, I think David sees something that nobody else sees. He acts on something that nobody else has the capacity to act on. Everybody else, they, they look around and they look in the valley and they see a giant scaring them. David sees something unique. He says armies because he's drawing on this long tradition. This is a word that's used to describe God. This is a title that was put on God. The original language is Yahweh Sabaoth. It means Lord of hosts. Maybe some of you have heard it. We don't use that language too often anymore. If you were to translate that as woodenly and as literally as you possibly could, you would come up with something like, like, like God of the armies. And people started asking questions long before David came on the scene. Hundreds of years. This is a long tradition of, of referring to God with this title. And they asked, um, so which kind of armies are we talking about? Because of course, of course, the God of the universe would be a God of an army bigger than just Israel. So they said, no, no, he's a God of like all the armies in the whole world. There's times that God manipulates and uses all kinds of different. He's God of all the armies in the world. Oh, yeah, but I guess it's more than that because... Because there's all kinds of stories in the Bible about these like angelic beings coming, transferred from one realm to this one. And they kind of sometimes look like us, sometimes they don't look like us, and they walk around among us. It's like these, these incredible supernatural angelic beings that, that are still at work today, and, and they're alive, and, and, they're, and they're moving. And the one who is in charge of all of those is Yahweh. The God of the armies, human and angelic. So I, when David 
When David arrives on the scene and there's a giant down in the valley and everybody is scared of the giant down in the valley, David isn't just talking about the giant down in the valley. David shows up and he's talking about the God in heaven. David starts talking about what he sees. And what he sees first isn't a giant in the valley. What he sees first is the God in heaven, the God of the armies, the God of the angel armies. And David knows he knows something. This is, this is key. This is huge. We, we got to get this right. David knows, David knows that the God of the angel armies, this is borrowing some of Max Lucado's language, he says, it's like watching the allies on D-Day when they storm, storm the beaches. Hey, except for now, we have platoons of angels as well as infantries of saints. We have the, the weapons of the wind as well as the forces of the earth. I mean, David might wonder, hey, hey, uh, I, I can't help but wonder if maybe he's going to rain down hail on Goliath like he did for Moses. Maybe he's going to like shake the earth and drop the walls down like he did for Joshua. I wonder if God is going to stir the thunder like he did for Samuel. The key point in all of this is that when David arrives on the scene and everybody's watching the giant, their eyes are focused on the giant, David shows up on scene and he knows one important, critical thing that he can't lose. No matter what happens, this thing has already been won. When the God of the angel armies is fighting through you? Listen, he might just be a shepherd, but he's a shepherd that can't lose. So I, when you're fighting a giant, it might be terrifying. And other people might look at you and in your shoes and in your circumstances, and they're going to see somebody who, just, who, who can't look past the giant like everybody else. And you're going to say, I see no giant because I see a God of the angel armies. And I can't lose. I can't lose if God is on my side. So David volunteers, and he says, listen, I'm going to go do this. And Saul says, all right, you're fighting against an infantryman. you got to dress like an infantryman. I'm going to help you out. Saul comes over, and he goes, uh, verse 38, then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. I just have to point out the irony here that David is like the anointed next great king over Israel, and Saul is already dressing him in his clothes. Yeah, take my throne while you're at it. Like, no, it's cool. But anyway, that, it's not mentioned. I just thought it was cool. Okay. Saul put on a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened his sword over the tunic and he, he, he like tries walking around because he was not used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I'm not used to them. So he took them off and then he took his staff in his hand. He chose five smooth stones from the stream. Some of you might remember this. He put them in a pouch in his shepherd's bag and with a sling in his hand, he approached the Philistine. A lot of you know what happens next. Quick prayer, quick flick of the wrist, slingshot away, giant comes down. False. The giant was not defeated in the valley. Your giant is not defeated in the valley. It mentions a slingshot, and I mentioned it earlier here. Um, so I just want to like point out, brought one with, this is a little bit small. There, uh, 
I mentioned before that artillery was a significant part. In, in the three-part uh, cavalry, artillery, and infantrymen, Goliath is an infantryman. He expects to fight an infantryman. David shows up as artillery, not in this case an archer, but as a slinger. You think like, it's a slingshot. You're kidding me, right? Imagine if somebody kind of starts whipping this thing around. You're, somebody could get hurt. You guys aren't going to let me do that. Uh, <laughs> Which is the point that I'm trying to make, by the way, that somebody could get hurt? Jake Arrieta, Cubs starting pitcher. Um, hashtag fly the W. Anybody? No? Okay. That was a bigger deal than that. Anyway, <laughs> pitches mid 90 miles an hour. Um, you just imagine this thing swinging around a little bit, starts to get going, flies off almost that speed. Historians and archaeologists say that with a sling, you could get accurate. Or, I mean, you could, you could inflict a serious damage up to 400 yards away. It was deadly, deadly for up to 200 yards away, which is like from here to about 44th Street, a long, a long ways, right? <laughs> if you could be accurate. One of these ways, um, probably something in the neighborhood of 18, 20 ounces. A baseball weighs about five ounces. Like, you start to see why it, it could it could cause some serious damage. I want to point out, though, that David is a kid. It doesn't take a lot of strength, but it takes a lot of skill to run one of these. You know, he's a, he's a kid when he fights Goliath. He's a kid when he first goes out in the field. I just wonder. He's 10 years old. I don't know why he's 10. He's got seven older brothers, and that's just the age that, you know, he can take on chores. He's watching sheep because nobody in the family wants to watch sheep. It's the most mind-numbing, dull job in the planet. So he has to do it. Youngest joke. I'm still getting over it. He has to do the sheep thing. Hey, Dad. Yeah. I'm out watching these tasty sheep, and there's bears out there. Like, what do I do if a bear comes? Here you go, kid. Here's your weapon. Dad, I don't know how to work on one of these. Kid, you should figure it out. In fact, David, practice one of these like your life depends on it because your life depends on it. Get to work. But don't worry, we've got six other kids if you don't work out. Like, <laughs> I just want us to see, he's out there in the field all day, uh, every day, almost. Uh, it's just Malcolm Gladwell wrote a book, Outliers, a little while ago, and this totally isn't biblical, but I just thought it was interesting, so, you know, bear with me. But Gladwell says, hey, to be world-class and do something, to be, like, one of the best in the world, he goes, you, you, should, you really need to put in about 10,000 hours to get just excellent at something, like he said, world-class. And so he makes a few, you know, cites a few examples. For a lot of people, that's, like, the better part of a career, just developing something over and over again. If you're out in the field and you've got nothing to do, Let's say David takes uh, five hours a day. You know, he's there sun up to sundown watching after these sheep. Five hours isn't a ton. But let's say he's just working on it five hours a day. Uh, five hours a day, six days a week because he's a good Jewish kid. He takes the Sabbath day off, times six. Let's say he does that for a few years straight. And he does it because he's kind of incentivized. There are bears after all, and he's just working on it. You know, he's throwing it up against the tree at first, you know, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 years old, and he's, he starts to get accurate. You know, the speed, velocity is not the issue. Accuracy is the issue. And pretty soon he hits a tree from 20 yards away. And that's incredible. He works like crazy at it. Maybe he kicks up to six hours a day. He's over there throwing rocks at a tree. Now he's accurate to 50 yards. The next year, 75, 100, 
150. By the time he's 14, by the time he's 17 years old, he's been doing this for most of his life that he can remember. He's accurate, just like most slingers were at 200 yards away. One of these, one of these hurled at about 70 or 80 miles an hour like he could have done, impacting a person at 18 ounces has more stopping power than a Colt 45. I want you to understand something. David did not win this fight because he was lucky. David won this fight because he brought a gun to a knife fight. Goliath was expecting to do hand-to-hand combat. David says, I could pick him off from the ridge if I wanted to, but let's make a show out of it and go down. I wonder if sometimes in between those, in between those practice sessions, in between those practice sessions, we know that David found a nice large tree to sit under when he was grazing his sheep. And he learned something out there in the, in the shepherd, in the shepherd's field. He learned not only how to hurl a rock at 90 miles an hour, he also learned how to write poetry and how to write songs. More important than that, David also picked up, he also picked up on this this sensitivity for realizing when God is near and the kinds of environments that God is near. David wrote psalm after psalm about what life was like out in those pastures, in those shepherd's fields. And for all we know, according to his writings, he sensed God was there with him. And he didn't just spend 10,000 hours trying to practice uh, throwing rocks at a tree. Oh, no, no. David also spent time under that tree, cultivating his relationship with God. So that by the time he shows up on the ridge to the army of Israel and everybody else looks down and they see nothing but Goliath, David looks down and he doesn't just see his Lord, he sees a friend go before him. David had cultivated this this, this intimacy with God so that by the time he shows up, he goes going, listen, I don't care if if it's the weapons of the wind, the forces of the sea, whether it's hail, whether it's earthquake, or whether it's thunder and lightning, I can't lose because God goes first and he's got this. Listen, you know what happens next. We're not going to tell the whole story because you know what happens. Verse 50 is enough. David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone without a sword in his hand. He struck down the Philistine and he killed him. I love this story, I think, because like everybody laughed. Every, nobody could believe it that, a, that an artilleryman, you know, a sniper would go in and, and fight the big giant, the infantrymen. Nobody would believe that just like this kid with his, with his sling, that he was actually practicing out in the field and that he got that good. I love this story because it's a perfect example of a redemptive story. These stories where we take the tools that we have available to us and maybe in our own hands there's weakness and there's liability, but if we hand them over to God, Like God takes those things and he does incredible things with them. I love the redemptive story of Goliath. And we think like he's got these massive, you know, strengths. He's big, he's strong, he's huge. But but like turn that over to God and like all of those strengths become liabilities and weakness. That now suddenly Goliath is just this 
big target that's slow moving. And David's like, listen, lions were a lot faster than you, man, but whatever. Like, we'll get this thing done. I love the power of the redemptive story because it's almost like God embeds this into so many parts of creation to like point us towards this possibility of how, you know, handing things over to him and like everything can, can somehow be put back together. And, it, and then his mysterious kind of economy and world, like everything is better than it was even before it got broke in the first place. It reminds me of this story I heard picked up on this week. David Boyce, his name was. He was, he's affectionately known as the lawyer who couldn't read, <laughs> which isn't like an awesome title, except to find out that he's one of the leading trial attorneys in the nation. And one time he sat down with somebody and the question got asked to him. They said, listen, um, David, like, how is it? Just a coincidence that his name is David, by the way. David, how is it? That you, could, that you could overcome your severe dyslexia and become this, this incredible trial attorney. And David says, listen, I have to stop you right there because you assume I overcame my severe dyslexia and my inability to read to become a trial attorney. He goes, no, 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 it's not that at all. I didn't overcome my dyslexia. That was part of it. In fact, that was critical to my development in becoming the, the attorney, the professional that I am today. He goes, can you imagine every kid in the classroom and there's like sitting up at their desk and they're writing down notes and their minds are split between the teacher and the notepad of paper. And he goes, I did not have the benefit of being able to write anything down fast enough. And even if I did, I couldn't read it later. I had to stare intently at my instructor and later my professor and just watch her mouth and the words that came out and memorize every single thing that was said in the classroom. By the time I got out of law school and started working cases, I was forced to carry this mountain of information in my head. And the other people, the people that, the people that tried cases against him and the people that worked with him said, it's incredible to see somebody who, can, who doesn't take notes, who doesn't write things down because he can't. He has, to, he has to carry it all inside of his brain. And when he's before a judge or when he's cross-examining a witness, he just gathers this huge amount of information from just all over court cases from here and there. And he does, does it all on the spot because his brain is this incredible machine all done all done, not in spite of his dyslexia, but because of it. We look at David and we see somebody who's a shepherd. He didn't spend his 10,000 hours cultivating fighting warrior skills. He threw rocks at a tree to defend himself and he prayed under a tree because apparently God was good and worth the time and David spent so long underneath that tree that when he shows up and he faces his giant for the first time in his life, he doesn't see anything except for a God of angel armies who goes before him. And that made all the difference in the world. Friends, I can't help but wonder if this is maybe why Jesus spent so long talking to his disciples about cultivating an intimacy with God. Because Jesus knew that the battle of your life is going to be won, not down in the valley on the battlefield, but the battle will be won over under the beautiful tree in the shepherd's pasture, grazing 
Jesus knew that, he knew that the intimacy with God is gonna be the difference maker when you face your giant and you will face your giant. And so Jesus said, disciples, go into, the, go into a closet, close and lock the door and just pray to your God who is unseen. Listen to him speak through scripture. Sometimes the disciples would wake up in the morning and Jesus was gone. And it turns out he went and he found a garden somewhere and he was spending all night praying to his father who was unseen. It got to the point where Jesus and his, his disciples came to Jesus and they said, Jesus, you obviously get something that we don't get. Would you teach us to pray? And he teaches them the Lord's prayer that we still do today. Friends, I just can't help but wonder if Jesus knew that there was a giant called Judas, a betrayer coming for him. He knew that there was a giant called Pilate ready to arrest him. He knew that there was a giant called crucifixion, called death, called sin, waiting for him, waiting to take his life. And for Jesus to meet that giant, he knew that he wasn't going to be defeated on the battlefield. He was going to be defeated. He's going to be defeated by praying underneath a tree in a garden. So before he saw his own crucifixion, Jesus saw his heavenly father going first. After the celebration when Goliath fell, after the Israelites chased the Philistines all the way back to the sea from where they came from, after the, after the you know, nationwide party in Israel for doing the impossible, we know that David was sent back to the field. He resumed life as a shepherd, and I just, I can't help but wonder if David went out, sat underneath that oak tree. You know, he sat down under the tree and just watching his sheep graze, and, and he's watching over them as the, as the protector that he is, and knowing that what he has just done and, and what God has just done for him. I wonder if it was at that moment that David picked up a pad of paper and a pen and wrote these words. You know, the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his namesake. And then this part, even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Friends, I want you to stand up and let's pray that together. Let, let's pray the words of Psalm 23 where we hear David learning that Goliaths and giants are not defeated on the battlefield of the valley. The giants are defeated with intimacy with God in the shepherd's pasture. When together, David and all of us gathered, we say this, the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Dear friends, fear no evil. God is with you. Amen.